help me enormously if you would please keep the Bible open at the passage that Lyndon has just read for us. And uh, if you're with us for the first time, you'll notice that on the inside of the white bulletin, um, there is an outline uh, that tells you where we're going to be going in the next few minutes. You might like to keep that open in front of you as well. But uh, now let's ask for God's help. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would lay bare the thoughts and attitudes of each of our hearts this morning, that you would convict us, rebuke us, challenge us, encourage us, teach us, that we might be changed more into the likeness of Christ, for we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Dr. Henry Howard was one of the most effective ministers in the history of the Australian church. Uh, With minimal advertising or promotional effort, he was able to attract and maintain capacity congregations of more than a thousand people for more than 30 years. And uh, hardly surprisingly, I think he was often invited to go and preach overseas. On one occasion, he was uh, in New York and he was preaching very strongly on the subject of sin. In fact, his message was so disturbing that after the service, one of the church wardens asked if he could have a word with him uh, in the vestry. Uh, Always a solemn moment for a preacher when a warden does that. And uh, the warden said, Dr. Howard, we actually don't want you to talk quite so openly about guilt and corruption, because it's only going to cause our young people to leave the church and turn away from God. So please will you not speak quite so bluntly on the subject of sin. Uh, Dr. Howard thought for a moment and he noticed there was a bottle up on the shelf behind where he was sitting and he took it down and he showed it to the church warden and he said, can you see the label on that bottle? It says strychnine. And then underneath in bold red letters, poison. So do you know what you're asking me to do? You're suggesting that I change the label. Well, suppose I do, and that I paste over it the words lemonade. Don't you see what might happen? Someone might drink it, not knowing or understanding the danger involved, and of course they would die. Now that's how it is with sin, he said. And then he made this marvellous comment. The milder you make the label, the more dangerous you make the poison. Now that actually is the issue that the Apostle Paul is dealing with in Romans chapter 6. It's a slightly different issue from the one that we were looking at last Sunday morning. If you were here then, you'll remember that the question back in verse 1 was, shall we continue in sin? Shall we persist in it? Shall we go on throughout our lives, sinning and sinning and sinning, so that God might be gracious to us? 
But this week, Paul's dealing with a slightly different question. Because here, the question is, can we as Christians sin occasionally? Does the occasional sin now and then really make such a great difference? I mean, if God is a God of grace, and if we're living under grace and not living under law, well, surely we don't need to get overexcited about the occasional sin, do we? And once again, Paul rejects that idea with horror. By no means, he says. That would be a totally wrong conclusion from my argument. It would be a false deduction. Every sin matters, and it matters enormously. We can never take sin lightly. And this time, in in the second half of chapter 6, he's approaching the question from a slightly different angle. Last week, uh, Paul was thinking about our conversion from God's perspective. Specifically, he was thinking about the significance of our union with Christ. Uh, We can't persist in sin because we've been taken out of Adam, out of the realm of sin, and we've been transferred into Christ. And now we're living in the most intimate and permanent way in union with Jesus. And that is what God has done for us. And we've got to remember that. And we've got to live our lives on the basis of that tremendous reality. Because of what God has done for us, we cannot persist in sin. But this week he's using a slightly different argument. And now in this passage, he's looking at conversion from man's point of view. Last week it was from God's point of view, but now it's from man's point of view. And the question is, what have we done? What commitment have we made? And his argument in this passage is going to be that not only can we not sin because of what God has done for us, but we also cannot sin because of what we've done and the commitment we have made. And the big thought in the passage is this, that conversion, Christian conversion, is commitment to God, to obey God, to serve God. And that's the point that he's going to be bringing us back to again and again, and actually he wants us to come back to it every day that we live. Conversion is commitment to God. And that being the case, well, of course, sin does matter because it's totally inconsistent with that commitment. So it matters very much. Every day, you and I are to present ourselves wholeheartedly to God. And you see, that makes sin something that we shrink from, something that we consciously and decisively turn away from. And in this passage, Paul's going to give us two reasons why we commit ourselves to God. And the first reason in verses 16 to 18 is this, that there are only two possible masters. In other words, what he's saying is that no human being on earth 
is independent. Nobody is completely free. Everybody serves a master. There's no getting away from it. It is an inevitability of our human condition. And to make the point, Paul refers in verse 16 to something that might at first sight sound rather strange to us, but it happened quite a lot in the first century. Uh, In verse 16, you'll notice he says this, When you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, and you and I read that, and we say, well, why on earth would anybody do that? Why would you ever go up to somebody and say, I want to be your slave? No normal person would ever think about saying anything remotely like that. But please stay with me here, because you'll find that this actually speaks to all of us. You see, back in the first century, there were no pensions, there were no government hospitals, there was no unemployment benefit, there was no medical aid, There was no social security safety net of any kind whatsoever. So in those days, (coughs) it was quite common for those who were poor to go and offer themselves to somebody better off. And they would approach that person and uh, they would say, I'll be your slave. And by doing that, you see, it meant that at least they had uh, a roof over their head, They had a bed to sleep on and three square meals a day for themselves and their family. Because in that culture, your master had to look after you. He was obligated to meet your needs. And so for that reason, it was a common thing for people to say, I'll be your slave, I'll work for you, and I will obey you. Now, Paul is using that to illustrate our condition as human beings. Because this is something that every single human being does today. We all offer ourselves to something or someone expecting them to meet our needs. We trust someone or something to meet our needs. But then... Whatever that is, whoever that is, they govern us, they direct us, and they rule us. And Paul's point in this passage is that there are only two options. There are only two possible masters you could serve. And he puts it this way in verse 16. Either we're slaves to sin, or in verse 16, we are slaves to to obedience. And a bit later on in the passage, he tweaks that ever so slightly. He talks about being slaves to righteousness in verse 18 and being slaves to God in verse 22. But basically, there are only two options. Either we serve sin or we serve God. There is no third master, no other choice No neutral position you can take. Uh, One writer puts it like this. He says, there is no spiritual Switzerland. Uh, That's actually a reference back to the Second World War, because back in the Second World War you had Germany and her allies, 
and you had the United Kingdom and the United States and their allies, and there was Switzerland. And they were on nobody's side. Nobody invaded Switzerland. They were neutral. But friends, in spiritual matters, there is no spiritual Switzerland. Everybody in the world is either a slave to sin or you are a slave to God. And that goes for everyone in church this morning. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. And if you're a slave to sin, it means that you are ruled and governed and patrolled and motivated by sin. And if you're a slave to God, you're ruled, you're governed, you're controlled and motivated by God. Which master does a Christian serve? Well, the answer's obvious. So, <clears throat> what really happens at Christian conversion from our point of view? Well, Christian conversion is us saying to Almighty God, I want to be your servant. I want you to be my master and I'm trusting you to meet all my needs. I'm giving myself to you. Notice how Paul puts it in verse 17. He says, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. Now something's happened to them, you see. Once upon a time they were slaves to sin, but now something's happened. They've chosen to obey the teaching about living under grace. And they've chosen to obey it willingly, gladly, wholeheartedly. And by the way, notice this in the text, will you? It wasn't that the teaching was entrusted into the care of the Christians. That's what we would expect Paul to say. He doesn't say that. Paul says that they were entrusted to the care of the teaching. And I think the idea there is that as the Christian hears and goes on hearing God's promises about his union with Christ, that he's justified and not condemned, that he's been set free from slavery to sin, that he's been given a fresh start, as he is exposed to that teaching, a church in the midweek Bible study, in his own daily Bible reading, he receives this wonderful news wholeheartedly. And the result is there in verse 18. He says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now you have a new master. So you see, when we're converted, we freely choose a new master. Almighty God. And we give ourselves to him. We come under his authority and we promise to obey him in everything. Uh, we commit ourselves to being shaped by his word, by his teaching, and that is our identity as Christian people. A Christian is a servant of righteousness. 
And you see, for that reason, it's obvious, isn't it, that we can't complacently say, well, the occasional sin doesn't really matter. Because that's a denial of our conversion. It's a contradiction of who you are. You're now slaves of righteousness. And the thought that the Christian can um, sin occasionally and and not be bothered by it is, is ridiculous. It's completely impossible. Because sin is something that causes us acute sorrow as Christians. We're ashamed. We're bitterly repentant. I shouldn't have done that, we say. It's just not appropriate. It's something that shouldn't happen. There are only two masters. Now let me pause for a moment and uh, introduce an objector. Uh, Paul does that quite a lot in Romans. He's not actually doing it here, but I'm going to do it. Uh, Somebody at this point might say, um, hang on a moment. I don't actually accept what you're saying. I don't accept the basis of your argument. I want to tell you I don't have any master. I admit that I'm not committed to God in the way that you describe, but I'm certainly not a slave to sin. That's a very negative and a very insulting way to talk about me. I try to be a decent person. I'm not religious, but I'm not wicked either. No, I try to be decent and moral and upright and to love my fellow man and do my best. I am a free human being. And I think what you're doing, Paul, is setting up a false comparison. You're saying, either I have to be a slave of God or a slave of wickedness. I don't accept that. I'm not a slave of God, but I'm not a slave of wickedness either. And uh, Paul knows, uh, and as a preacher, I find this so encouraging. Paul knows that his illustration is not perfect. The picture of slavery is not a perfect picture. And that's why he says in verse 19, I'm putting this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. In other words, I I know it's not ideal, but I've got to find some way of getting this across to you so that you can understand it because this is really, really important. Why? Because you are not free. Nobody's free because you're not free from yourself. You're not free from your own nature. Some years ago, uh, we had a black Labrador called Guinness. Um, In many ways, she was an absolutely lovely dog, the ideal pet. Uh, But whenever we took her out for a walk, she had just one thought in her head. Bird. I must chase birds. So, as soon as we stepped out of the front door, you could kind of almost see the speech bubble over her head. Uh, Most of the time, she never actually caught them. Uh, Just occasionally, she would come back with a mouthful of feathers, which could be rather embarrassing, depending on where we were at the time. Uh, But most of the time, Guinness just ran after the birds until she had absolutely no idea where she was. And uh, eventually she would kind of make her way back to us, looking utterly wrecked. Now, at the beginning of a walk, we could have said, Guinness, 
Today, we're going to take this brightly coloured ball with us. Uh, We're going to throw it for you. You're going to fetch it. And it's going to be a lot more fun than chasing birds. Uh, This lovely ball even squeaks when you chew it. And you're not going to get nearly so exhausted. It's going to be a lot more enjoyable, much less stressful for all concerned. But here's the point. You're free to choose. You decide. You are absolutely free. I can tell you a hundred times out of a hundred, the ball stood absolutely no chance. It was birds every time. Now, think about it. Was she compelled to make the same choice? No, she wasn't. She was perfectly free to chase either the bull or the bird. She didn't have to chase the birds. But you see, it was her nature. She would always choose according to her nature. And so in one sense, it was a free choice. But it was not a free choice in the sense that she was not free to be other than she was. She always acted in accordance with her own self and her own nature. And friends, so do we. The decisions we make, they're not just governed by our reason and by our mind. Your decisions are shaped by the underlying core of your personality. We do what we want to do. We do what it is in our nature to do. And the free choices uh, that we make, the thousands of decisions that we make every single week, they reveal our fundamental nature. Now you see, that is what the Apostle Paul is talking about in verse 16. Please put your nose on verse 16. He says there, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. So think about it. Your sceptical friend says, um, I have no master, I'm absolutely free. But then his cell phone rings. And it happens to be the ringtone that he's allocated to his wife or to his employer. And what does he do? Immediately he stops whatever he was doing, however important it might be. He might be in the middle of a really significant conversation. He stops it, he takes the call, and he does whatever the person on the end of the phone tells him to do. So he's not actually free, after all. And in the same way, You and I have personalities which are either directed away from God or they are directed towards God. Those are our masters. Now you can occasionally act contrary to your personality. We can all do that. But normally you act according to the dictates of your nature and your personality. And either you're motivated by sin, which is just shorthand for living to please yourself, or you're motivated by God. Sin or God 
is the controlling force in your life. It's one or the other. There is no third personality type. And Paul, you see, is saying that if your life is characterised by sin, if you habitually obey sin, if you take sin lightly, what are you saying? You're saying, my master is sin. I'm not actually a Christian at all. I may claim to be. I may say that I am. But who do I obey? Not who do I call my master. Who do I actually obey? And to live in sin, or to flirt with sin, or to take sin lightly, is to obey it. And how can such a person claim to be a Christian? There are only two masters. But then Paul has got another compelling reason why we should present ourselves willingly to God, and it is this. There are only two possible lifestyles. Verses 19 to 23. There are only two possible masters, but there are only two possible lifestyles. And you see, it follows, doesn't it? Because each master makes demands consistent with his own nature. It's logical, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Satan is not going to demand that you read your Bible or go to the weekly prayer meeting or love your neighbour. He's not going to do that, is he? He'll make demands consistent with his own nature. And if your master is evil, uh, think of your employer for example, if your employer is evil and dishonest, he is going to make demands that are consistent with his nature. If your employer is an upright man or woman with, with tremendous integrity, then they're going to make demands consistent with their nature, which is why you must choose your employer wisely. Now that's how it is in your spiritual life as well. And Paul says, if you obey sin, you need to realise what sin is going to ask you to do and where sin is going to take you and what direction sin is going to lead you in. So, think back for a moment to what your life was like before you became a Christian. You see, this is where Paul's going. Look at the middle of verse 19. He says, You used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. Do you remember? Do you remember what you were like, what life was like before you were a Christian? I don't think I need to specify. Uh, Each of us will have personal memories. They're embarrassing, often, unpleasant, not good. And Paul asked the question in verse 21, what a penetrating question it is. He says, what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you're now ashamed of? What a good question. He's saying, was it great being a non-Christian? Was it wonderful? 
But when you look back, do you think, well, you know, it was so much better then before I became a Christian and started all that church stuff. I mean, do do you look back and say, oh, yes, it was absolutely delightful. I just love remembering those days when I wasn't a Christian and the things I did, it was great. Um, I wish I had more photographs of those days so I could put them in an album and take the album out and look at it occasionally. Paul says, what utter nonsense. No, when you look back, when I look back, we're ashamed. You don't like thinking about it. You feel your cheeks getting hot when you remember it. You're embarrassed. Do you remember the emptiness? Do you remember that the feelings of dissatisfaction, the guilt, the fear... Do you remember the situations you found yourself in? You shouldn't have been in them. Do you remember the people that you hurt? What benefit, Paul says, did you reap from all that? Do you want to go back to that lifestyle? Because you see, that is what happens if you choose sin. But your new master, he's so different, isn't he? Look at the end of verse 19. Here's the alternative. Offer the parts of your body in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. Or verse 22. The benefit you reap leads to holiness. And the point he's making is that your new master is a kind master. He's a good master. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. There are no regrets in serving him. No shame in serving him. And there are no painful memories. And think about it. How do you spend your time now? What do you delight to do now? What kind of friends do you have now? True friends? Real friends? Friends who will actually stand by you? Friends who will give you the shirt off their back, if needs be? How do you feel about yourself now? And how do you feel about your future now? I mean, it's brighter and brighter and brighter, isn't it? Heaven, ultimately. So, is it not a better way of life in every way? So, how could you possibly think about going back to the old life? Two different lifestyles. Which is better? And Paul says, actually, there's something else. And friends, this is, this is solemn, but it's also wonderful. But think about this. Listen to me carefully. Don't forget that neither lifestyle stands still. You cannot stand still spiritually. What does that mean? Well, it means that your lifestyle is a conveyor belt. Uh, It's like a moving walkway. And there's a terrible phrase that makes the point. 
in verse 19. I wonder if you noticed it. Paul says that if sin is your master, then you're on a conveyor belt that leads to ever-increasing wickedness. It's a very grim picture, that, isn't it, of moral deterioration. And what it's saying, you see, is that Satan will make you worse and worse and worse. You might think that won't happen. You might be thinking, well, um, look, I, I am involved in sin just a little bit, but basically I'm a decent person, um, I've got certain standards, and I'm only involved in sin to a limited extent. And that's what the young person thinks when they pop their first pill or smoke their first joint. Because when they do that, you see, they don't see themselves as the heroin addict lying in the gutter with their body utterly ruined. But that's the end of it. That's where the conveyor belt's going. You remember the story of the prodigal son in the Gospel of Luke, I'm sure you do. One of the most famous stories the Lord Jesus ever told. You know it well. And just imagine if you had been that day when the prodigal son uh, set off for the far country, left the father's house, going to the far country. And uh, supposing you had said to him, you're going to end up in a pigsty. He'd have laughed at you. He'd have said, don't be ridiculous, I'm not going to end up in a place like that, I'm going to have a marvellous life. But that is precisely where he ended up. You see, and that's the reason for this, is that Satan's goal, if you don't belong to Christ, Satan's goal is to make you a devil in hell. I wonder if you knew that. If you're not yet a Christian, you need to know that unless you come to Christ, Satan will be at work in your life to make sure that you're a devil in hell. Because that is where sin leads. That's where the conveyor belt is going. So don't let anybody put a different label on the bottle of sin. Don't let them tell you that, oh yeah, don't worry about it, really. Uh, it's really satisfaction or personal fulfilment or freedom because it's a lie. If sin is your master, you are on a conveyor belt that's headed in one direction only. On the other hand, God's plan is to make us better better and better. More Christ-like. More loving. More pure. More attractive. More beautiful. More and more like Jesus until that day when we stand in front of him and we'll be like him. Perfect, sinless, and glorious, just like him. So, my friend, which master are you going to follow? Which lifestyle is the better lifestyle? Can I say, when we play with sin, we're actually damaging ourselves. 
We're ruining ourselves. And Paul takes us uh, in this passage right to the very end of the conveyor belt. He takes us to the final destination in verse 23. Please look at verse 23. He says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, there's a road to hell and there's a road to heaven. And those are the only two possible destinations for human beings. Uh, There is heaven by God's mercy and faith in Christ and there is hell by every other way that men have ever lived. And sin leads to death and to hell. Some years ago, there was um, an anti-smoking campaign. And uh, some of you might remember this. On every box of cigarettes you bought, there was a message that said, I'm now going to kill myself a little bit. Do you remember that, anybody? Anybody see it? The idea was, every time you took a cigarette, you were reminded, oh yes, I'm now going to kill myself a little bit. And that's what we're doing every time we sin. We're killing ourselves. Just a little bit. Conversely, to obey God and to resist sin is to live more intensely, more beautifully, more satisfyingly. It's actually to take another step on the conveyor belt that leads to heaven and towards a marvellous, perfect new existence. Not because we deserve it. We actually only deserve the wages of sin. But eternal life, notice in verse 23, is a gift. It's the gift that God in his grace gives to all of his servants. Verse 23 is a precious text, isn't it? Because it lays the choice before us in such a clear way. Which master will you serve? Sin or God? Which destiny will you choose? Death or eternal life? And which way of receiving it? By wages? Or as a free gift. My dear friends, don't cheat yourselves. Don't destroy yourselves. Don't give yourself to the wrong master. Don't take sin's wages and refuse God's gift. A bit later in Romans chapter 12, Paul will say this to the same congregation. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Shall we pray?
Heavenly Father, please help us to understand afresh that in becoming a Christian, we make a commitment to turn away from the cruel, evil, unclean, murderous master towards you, our kind, loving, gracious, glorious master. Help us, we pray, to renew that commitment every day, as it were, to be converted once again, to give ourselves to you each morning, to commit ourselves to you each evening, to give you our minds, our words, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our energy, all that we are, surrendering our bodies to you in joyful service. Help us not to be deceived by sin, but to realise that it's ugly and destructive, and to see behind the disguise of the angel of light the true form and ugliness of the devil. Help us wholeheartedly to present ourselves to you every day as living sacrifices, and so to experience life in all its fullness. We ask it for Christ's sake. to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And uh, before we do that, we need to be quiet.